The sun is rising over the South China Sea. The hum of our trawler's engine is audible over the voices of the crew preparing for a day of work. We're far from any land, and the sea is rough and choppy. There are estimated to be around 1.5 million fishing vessels chartered from Southeast Asian countries, and many are just like ours, ordinary. Many others, however, hold a secret. Aboard these secretive vessels, voices are suppressed. Hey, I'm Haley. And I'm Quentin. We're your hosts on the Injustices Uncovered podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really eager to dive into our topic today, Quentin. Let's introduce our listeners to what we'll be talking about for the remainder of the show. Absolutely. So, folks, today, very broadly, we're going to be talking about the fishing industry. When you picture fishing in your mind, I'm betting your first thought involves a person with a rod and some bait. More than likely, that person isn't concerned about catching fish. It's the meditative and reflective nature of fishing that captivates many people's perceptions. When I think about the fishing industry from a consumer perspective, it often evokes the idea of a cleaner, more ethical, and more sustainable industry than that of other animal products like beef, pork, and poultry. I think it is often misperceived as a very peaceful process without room for environmental or labor injustices. I couldn't agree with you more, Haley, and that peaceful and humane reputation that you just mentioned is maintained for a variety of reasons. But one that we think is crucial to consider is the fact that commercial fishing often takes place in isolated locations. In short, many fishing vessels are free from public scrutiny simply because of their isolation. For many, what goes on during commercial fishing outings is a complete and utter mystery. Gradually, more information from activist groups has surfaced regarding some of the dangerous practices that occur aboard fishing vessels. Most of this attention, however, has been largely centered around the environmental impact of commercial fishing. And don't get us wrong, these environmental impacts are really important to discuss. One such environmentally damaging practice that commercial fishing vessels have been found to use is bottom trawling. Bottom trawling is a fishing method that involves dragging a weighted net across the seafloor, and it can wipe out entire ocean floor ecosystems as collateral damage. Environmental groups like Greenpeace have focused their attention on ending practices like bottom trawling because of its extremely detrimental effects on ocean biodiversity. With an increased global demand for seafood despite limited supply, environmental effects are not the only ones now being felt as a result of the commercial fishing industry's need for product. Unbeknownst to consumers all over the world, many advocate groups like the Lowy Institute, for example, have found that the seafood we buy in supermarkets could seemingly be a product of slave labor. I'm sure many of you listeners are wondering, how can this be possible? That was my first question when I was initially introduced to this topic. How can slavery still exist in the world today? It is difficult to reconcile with the fact that slavery could exist on this modern scale and actually directly benefit Western consumers, but it's the harsh reality of this industry. We want to switch gears now and tell the story of Vinokanan Prum. Prum was enslaved upon a Thai fishing vessel for five years before he eventually escaped. His story really goes about addressing how slavery could be possible in the modern day. Stick with us here. Prum's story begins in Cambodia, where he was looking for work in order to support his wife and unborn baby. After hearing a rumor that there were good work opportunities in Thailand, he met a man who agreed to help him get across the border. Prune was told that he could make more than enough to pay for the hospital bill for his wife, 
and that his employment would last only a few short months. Months, as it happens, became years. The conditions that Prune would be forced to endure were mentally and physically scarring, a far cry from the simple drying of fish that he was falsely led to believe he would be doing. Upon reaching Thailand, the middleman brought Prume and others who had crossed with him to the boss of a commercial fishing company. They were held captive for days and then forced onto a boat that carried them far out to sea. Unbeknownst to Prume and the others, the middleman had a deal with this boss to deceive migrants into coming to Thailand for work, only to sell them into slavery. Prume had been sold by the labor broker that claimed to have his best interest at heart. It is worth noting that sadly, Prume's story isn't unique. An estimated 200,000 migrant workers from Cambodia, Myanmar, and Laos are prone to such exploitation by the $6.5 billion Thai fishing industry, according to the Rax Thai Foundation. It's important now that we discuss in detail the general process that these deceptive labor brokers undergo before we continue laying out Vinakanan Prum's story and the bravery with which he expressed the brutality he experienced. These exploitative labor issues are especially prevalent in developing countries in Southeast Asia, where poverty is rampant and people who are desperately searching for work fall victim to ingenuine labor contracts. The Freedom Fund establishes that migrants often incur debt from labor brokers, costs ostensibly associated with transportation and securing employment in Thailand. This debt is often transferred by labor brokers to owners of seafood processing factories or fishing boats, resulting in bonded labor. So, essentially, these migrants are trapped by false debt that brokers reveal once the individual has migrated and has no money to pay it off. Prim recalls in his memoir, It sounded too good to be true, like a trick, but all I had was 10,000 riel, about 250 US dollars, in my pocket, you know, too little to go on, and not enough to turn back. The driver said, don't worry about the money, the middlemen will pay me when you arrive. However, once they arrived in Thailand, Prum and the others found no work, and were told that they must pay their travel costs in order to be free to go. The preceding quote that was just read to you, listeners, is drawn directly from Prum's graphic memoir entitled The Dead Eye and the Deep Blue Sea. We'll frequently draw on Prum's memoir for the remainder of this piece, as it provides harrowing details of Prum's years at sea. So, not only are these migrants workers trapped by invented debt, but once they are forced onto the boat, the nature of being isolated at sea further seals their fate. Surrounded by miles of ocean, there is little hope to escape, and the captains of the ships are violent towards anyone who resists. Prum recounts, Our orders came from the first mate, Hona. He would enforce the captain's commands. Our Hona was a Thai who treated us like animals. He beat the slow and the weak. He made a knife from the poison barb of a stingray's tail and would threaten to kill us with it if we reacted too slowly or tried to rest. On the ship, Prum and another captured laborer pondered their fate and lamented over the injustice they were suffering as a result of simply trying to support their families. If I had been sold, what would my children do? He didn't sound angry, but shocked, like a man who had lost his soul. What will they eat? he asked. And how will they survive? His story was like mine, and we both began to weep. In addition to the mental toll of enslavement and separation from everything familiar, the hazards aboard the ship were numerous. Prum describes the dangers of the ice room, the heavy deck equipment and cables, getting tangled in nets, 
The nauseating black eye gas, snapping sharks and rays, raging storms, abusive bosses, and the general perils of working constantly without rest or relief from injuries. Danger and uncertainty consumed the lives of Prume and his shipmates for years. Fights often broke out amongst the workers, too, with violence fueled by hopelessness, drugs, and mere boredom. The days went round until they seemed endless. I was so bored. I no longer knew what day, month, or even year it was. The boat became the whole world. Life seemed so strange. Why was the world so full of water? Why so many fish and dead bodies? I was scared I would never escape. I'd be trapped forever. I knew that one day I would have to jump into that endless ocean to be free. Eventually, Prume did escape. One night, when his boat finally saw land, he and another enslaved crewmate jumped overboard and swam ashore, finally standing on solid ground for the first time in three years. For a while, we hid in the boat's shadow to make sure no one had noticed. Then we swam for our own lives to get clear of the boat's spotlights. I didn't look back. I just thought of my mother and prayed the whole way. Once on shore, they had no sense of where they were, or which way to go, and were tragically recaptured and sold to slaves to work on an oil palm plantation in Malaysia. In their attempts to become free, they then spent eight months in Malaysian prisons. However, finally, after another two years, Prume made his way back home. We cannot even begin to understand the hardships that Prume experienced, but we're thankful to be able to share his story and bring light to the injustices that he and many others suffer behind the cover of the vast ocean. Prum's tale of enslavement is harrowing and poignant, and yet as we've previously discussed, the unique aspect of Prum's story is the fact that he was able to escape and live to tell it. Stories like Prum's feel extremely far removed from consumers in the West, and yet as we mentioned at the start of this show, we directly benefit. Seafood Source journalists back this up in their findings that the number one export destination for all Thai seafood is the United States. The Center for Advanced Defense Studies, as published in Hakai Magazine, also found that broadly, the European Union, the United States, Russia, and Uruguay are all likely recipients of fish from forced labor. So what's being done so far by the governments of developed nations to mitigate their direct contributions to this industry? Well, the answer is complicated. One example of past action being taken by the U.S. was reported by German media company Deutsche Welle. In 2014, the U.S. State Department downgraded Thailand to Tier 3, the lowest rating possible in the Trafficking in Persons report, while the European Commission issued a yellow card, threatening to ban Thailand from exporting seafood products to the European Union. According to the Deutsche Welle reporters, the formal warning served as a wake-up call for Thailand to overhaul its lucrative fishing sector. Measures adopted include amendments to its fisheries law, mandatory installation of vessel monitoring systems, establishment of port-in, port-out centers, and an increased fines for violations. This so-called overhaul resulted in Thailand actually being upgraded to Tier 2 in 2018, and its yellow card status being lifted. So, problem solved, right? Unsurprisingly, that wasn't the case. Let's hear from the Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch, Phil Robertson. There is no doubt that Thailand has taken its foot off the pedal when it comes to vigorous enforcement of the laws on the fishing fleet. Robertson continues, The Thai fishing industry remains desperate to get enough fishermen to come on board the boats, 
so they continue to use many tricks to keep those they have. The failure of new legislation that was intended to resolve the issue of modern slavery has led to many activists and media pressuring the U.S. government to downgrade Thailand once again on its human trafficking report. In March of 2020, Thomson Reuters Foundation reporter Nanchanok Wangsamuth assessed the argument that Thailand should once again be downgraded, citing a report from the Thai Seafood Working Group that claims, The Thai government has made no progress in key areas, including the number of forced labor cases, labor inspections, assisting potential victims of trafficking, as well as addressing widespread debt bondage and the withholding of workers' travel documents. Despite these outcries, when the State Department released its Trafficking in Persons report in June 2020, can you listeners guess where Thailand was located? Spoiler, the State Department kept Thailand in Tier 2, revealing a willful desire to simply hope this problem goes away on its own. Shockingly, the only Southeast Asian country the State Department listed as Tier 3 was Myanmar. That leaves Brunei, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, East Timor, Indonesia, and, as Quinton mentioned, Thailand, spread across Tier 2, with some in the Tier 2 watch list. This lack of accountability from consumer nations is hardly what the victims of modern slavery aboard fishing vessels deserve. I couldn't agree more, and with that being said, what can we do about it? Well, for starters, interest groups along with individuals must continue pressuring countries like the U.S. to catalyze policy changes in those nations that are dependent on fishing exports. We also need to ensure that history doesn't repeat itself in the form of waning enforcement on new policies. Consumers need to demand that seafood is ethically caught and adequately overseen by regulators, even on the most isolated of vessels. Programs need to be in place that ensure the safety of these regulators, and development in general needs to take place that siphons emphasis away from the fishing industry. There are many steps that must be taken to ensure that stories like Vinakanan Prooms will no longer exist, but the sheer number of steps should not be a deterrent. No one deserves to suffer like Prume and the other victims of bonded labor aboard fishing vessels. We hope that over the course of this episode, you'll have developed a better understanding of how exactly modern slavery has come to be in the fishing industry, particularly in the Southeast Asian region. We think that it is imperative to bring light to this issue in order to explore some potential ways forward. I would like to take this opportunity as we sign off to extend an immense thank you to Vinakanan Prune for having the bravery to share his story. Without it, this episode wouldn't have been possible. Prum's courage is truly inspiring to us as hosts, and we hope this is equally true for our listeners after hearing his story. More voices like Prum's need to be heard. Well, everyone, once again, I'm Quentin. And I'm Haley. We appreciate your time. Thanks all, and see you next week on Injustices Uncovered.